Hi, everyone. It's autumn, the time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at even greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to your doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. I am Jerry Wan, your host. I am here along with our producer, Patrick Armstrong. And we're so excited for this episode. Uh, Patrick just told me offline that this is now his favorite episode, uh, <laughs> much more favoriter, that's a word, than his own episode. Um, who's on the show today, Pat? Today, we have filmmaker Frank Chi on the show. And yes, this... As I was going through the editing process of this episode, I was just really enthralled in the conversation and came out the other side thinking that this is probably my favorite of 171 Dear Asian American episodes now. Yeah, I'm so excited. So Frank directed movie that came out today. Uh, as you listen to us on HBO Max, it will also premiere on regular HBO for people who still pay for cable. And the movie is called 38 at the Garden, which is about the title makes you think that it is about... Uh, February 10th, 2012, when Jeremy Lin scored 38 against the Lakers at Madison Square Garden. But it is much more than that. It is a commentary on our Asian American experience, our existence here, the rejection that Jeremy faced, the challenges that he faced as an individual, as a Taiwanese American basketball player trying to make it in the NBA, under the context of the last two or three years of what we have all endured and experienced and witnessed in the Asian American community, the violence, the racism, just the fear of stepping out of our own home. And Frank does that masterfully using basketball and using Jeremy as the anchor for that conversation. Um, what was your favorite part of the interview? Um, so I think my, f I, I mean, the whole interview is my favorite part, but I think the part that really stuck out to me the most was, and I'm not going to share the whole story, but to just give a quick overview, Frank talks about the night that he went to go see the game. And ended up watching the game in K-Town in New York because the scalpers were trying to charge an exorbitant amount of money for the tickets. And how it wasn't necessarily the game itself, but the reaction of everyone in the bar that he was with. And just him observing what that meant, not only in the context of his own story, but what he could see and what I believe he's he's articulating as being this... Communi communal catharsis for Asian America on this really historic night. And for context, like I remember when Linsanity was going on and I was sharing with Jerry offline about how when this was happening, I was still in this deep phase of rejection of my own Asian identity. And while I was rooting for him as like, oh, this Asian basketball player, it's great because I also love basketball. It gave me pause because I was in school, in high school, when Yao Ming came into the NBA. And I vividly remember that because as much as I loved basketball then, I as growing up in a predominantly white town, dealing with the stereotypes and specifically those different things that weigh or hold us back as a community, I became Yao Ming. I was that person. And I hated that. You know, I leaned into it and played the stereotypical jokes and laughed at myself. But inside, I hated it. And so watching Jeremy go through this really transformative, transcendent period in basketball, which honestly was truly amazing when you think about it and look back on it, was incredible, but it also gave me pause. And so when he was relaying this story, I was getting really emotional listening to it because I thought about how not only it was really powerful for us as a community, but how, how in different parts of Asian America, it could also have been not so great. And because I was lacking that cultural context and awareness, you know, I, I, I missed out on a lot, on a lot of that catharsis. And it would take me again another 10 years after that to find it. And so to hear him relay that story and now thinking about it in the context of my own journey, you know, it just it's it's just tying different points back together to me. And it I don't know, it just it really meant a lot to hear him explain that and realize that it still did matter. And it still does matter to my own story as an Asian American. And as I continue to try and find my place in that in that community, oh, thanks, man. I you know it's it has been cool to uh, be alongside your journey, 
and to to see how our stories have also helped how other stories have helped you see yourself and, and see other folks. And and so if you're listening to us, um, you know, uh, please come back and listen, but pause this, go watch the doc, and then come back, because it'll make a lot more sense. And I, I said this on the episode, but if you don't have HBO Max, invest in it, because they invested in Frank, they invested in Jeremy, and, and sharing our stories. And so um, don't share passwords. But without further ado, here is my conversation with the director of 38 at the Garden, Frank Chi. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Eurasian Americans. I am so, so, so excited for this one. Um, so much so that I saw a movie on Thursday and we're recording this Tuesday. And by the time you get to hear this interview, maybe later in the day, uh, I don't know exactly what time of day it comes out. And if you don't have HBO Max, this is your plug. We're not sponsored by HBO Max, but you got to give them some money today or sign up for a free trial. I don't know how it works, but do yourself a favor and watch 38 at the Garden. It poses itself as a basketball movie about Jeremy Lin, but it is far more than that. And today I have with us Frank Chi, who is a director of 38 at the Garden, and we'll soon learn that he's actually had, he has had an impact on our lives and the way we talk about society and culture for far much longer than just this movie. So, so excited to welcome you, Frank, to the show. How are you doing, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Jerry. I'm really glad to be here. Let's talk about the last few weeks. Um, you've been screening the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I met in San Francisco last Thursday mm -hmm. at the Asian American Foundation Summit. Uh, shout out to everybody in the team there, um, Norman, uh, Joy, and everybody who brought us together. And we got to see the film. Uh, happy to admit, I was tearing up for the entirety of the film. How has your life been as you have toured the country, shown this to uh, diverse groups of people, yeah. and, and gotten feedback? It's been a very emotional experience. Um, look, there are just a lot of tears when people watch the movie. And I think it's of whatever background, right? I, I think I've had people come up to me and be like, we were mesmerized by the movie or like, you know. I So there there was someone who, who was a therapist who came up to me afterwards and was like, like, that does in 38 minutes more what therapy can do for a lot of people in years. Right. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, but I think it probably speaks a lot to a lot of the internalized trauma Asian Americans have, whether it's growing up this way or the sudden weaponization of this identity over the last couple of years. Um, you know, like a lot of these screenings mean the most to me, but I'll, I'll just tell you what my mother said when I screened it for her. Um, She's really good at like very succinct movie reviews. I took her to see The Farewell. And uh, by the end of the movie, she just said to me, it's just so true. And at the end of 38 The Garden, first of all, like towards the end, she just grabs me. She like grabs my arm, right? And she's like emotional. And at the end, she just says, it's just been so hard. And I think that that is a sentiment that despite the fact that like there was a lot of joy in the movie, right? We explore a whole wide range of emotions. It's a roller coaster if, if you see it. But if you are Asian American, especially by the end of the, by the, by the, end of the, the, the movie, you're probably saying to yourself to a degree, it's just been so hard. Um, so I, I, that, that was the review that probably meant the most to me, <laughs> not, not surprisingly, but I think it's, I think it's true. I mean, I you know, when we say we cried through the movie, these are not all happy or sad tears right. or angry tears. Right. Uh, a lot of it was happy tears. Mm -hmm. um, you you were able to masterfully infuse humor, mm -hmm. um, pop culture, a, a diverse set of voices. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for folks who are going to go see the film, you'll hear from uh, Asian American, you know, names and faces. You'll also hear from some of his old teammates. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that gives us such a really 360 view of what this um, – I mean, the, the title makes you think that it's a moment, but it's not, right? It's just a, you know, a substitute for a movement or at least a, a snapshot of, of a longer movement that we are all witnessing. And, and as you said, I think part of it is that um, as well-intentioned as our parents were, they did not really have the language mm -hmm. or even the understanding to help us explain some of these things. And um, at least, you know, and I think this is part of Jeremy's story too. Like, I think... We genuinely believe because we wanted it so much to be true that if we just worked hard enough, whether it was academically or athletically in his case, that great things will happen. Mm -hmm. 
that I think that we we wanted to so much believe in the truth and the validity of the advertised American meritocracy, right? Right. Yeah. The best of the best. If you just work hard enough. Right. Um, And sadly, 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 we have all realized at one point in our lives. And if you haven't experienced it, yes, you have. (laughs) You just haven't. You just don't want to admit to it yet that sadly uh, race does play into so much of the supposed objective decisions that have been levied upon us, whether it is getting into school or getting jobs or promotions or even opportunities to make a film like yours and get funding, you know, all these things, such barriers, right? Um, You you talked about your mom. Tell us about your family. Where did you grow up and and how did you see yourself in the earlier days of Frank's life Mm. that helped you sort of see yourself as both uh, an American and an Asian American? Well, so I'm an immigrant kid. I came here when I was seven. Uh, My parents are from China. And when I got here... Uh, we lived in New Haven, Connecticut. That's where I grew up. And it was, what's the best way to put it? I think, you know, if you are a child of immigrants or you're like a, a baby immigrant yourself, like growing up in the 90s, especially, it was like this really strange moment where like this is before it, like interactivity, right? Before social media, before the internet really became the staple in our lives that it is today, you're just constantly intaking American culture without like with, without any explanation, without any reaction to it. You just have to intake it, right? It's the MTV culture. It's and and that was sort of how I became an American was just watching movies and constantly trying to understand this world I, I got you know, plopped into. I, I don't have any real true memories of growing up in China. But when I when I got here, I just I think I was just always trying to I wouldn't even say fit in. I was just always trying to like keep my head above water. You know? Mm. Um I don't remember learning English, but I gotta imagine that, that was hard. I was like seven years old, right? Um but life for me was I mean like the big part of that was was movies. You know, I still remember being like a little kid sitting in like a very, very crowded theater watching that little feather come down from the sky in the opening scene of Forrest Gump. Like that's one of those vivid memories of my life. Mm. Um, or my parents taking me to see Home Alone 2 or Independence Day or Jurassic Park or, you know, like like this. These are the memories that define my childhood. And I think so much of it was stories are how we try to connect with a new world that we're really, really trying to be a part of. Um, stories are, are, are universal because all humans, you know, follow the same arc in the way we pay attention to things because those are the things that make sense to our lives. Right. Um, so I, I've always been somebody who was captivated by stories. And as I got older and I, as I did like, you know, feel more American culturally, I still just didn't feel like, like I was intaking this version of America that's really weird to me, mm-hmm. right? Because like, I'm not white, I'm not black. I'm also like, not like, you know, West Coast Asian American, right? Like I'm an immigrant and, you know, I'm taking it like my, my home is not like an Asian American, like bastion. It's like a, a Chinese family, you know, like a Chinese immigrant family. And, you know, when I go to school, you know, it's a lot of white folks and a lot of black folks, right? So like, I'm trying to figure out where I fit, right? And I couldn't answer that question for a really long time. Um, and I, I consider myself sort of culturally lost and not even like politically like conscious at all when I was a kid. Um, I, when I got to college, I went to Bowdoin in Maine. Uh, I sort of, I felt the same way up until my sophomore year or right before my sophomore year in college began, I, I was in the college Democrats and I, I went to Boston for the democratic national convention in 2004. And I just, I, I knew about him, but I just didn't know how good he was, but I saw Barack Obama speak on that second mm. night. And, uh, I used to be able to recite that speech by heart, you know, wow. um, hope, the hope of a skinny kid with a funny dream with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. Right. That speech changed my life um it gave me language to 
that mm-hmm. feeling that I always felt about feeling like I should have a place in this country, but nobody gave me permission structure to belong, um, you know, on a micro level and a macro level, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like any politician or any major public figure had ever made me feel that way. Um, and from there on, I, I, just, I caught the political bug. I, I sort of dove headfirst into politics. Um, mm. and this is like 2004 election heading, you know, right into 2008. I graduated in 2007. I was lucky enough to be that one, to be that obsessed with Obama, but I was lucky enough when I graduated, um, to get a job on his campaign. I, I wanted to do political advertising. I want to do like communications work and I got to be a part of his political, like, ads team as a kid. I mean, I was getting coffee. Let's keep it real. I wasn't like, you know, doing real stuff, but like, you know, you're 22 years old. You're like, Oh my God, this is how I get to greet the real world. This is amazing. So, and then he won. Right. So I've, I've just been on this journey of like, we are ascendant. We won, you know, like this multicultural America that this guy is the head of that we can, can all be a part of I mean, the politics was joining politics, entering politics was an act of belonging me um and that lasted for like a good decade and i think you know since essentially 2015 when i feel like american multiculturalism really started to fall apart in the way we understand it today i've been trying to figure out where where my voice is you know how how i want to speak to people um and it's been a journey so far but i think 38 the garden is sort of this it's it's a it's a big manifestation of me answering that question myself. I mean, there, there, there's so many through lines to your story, Frank. I think, you know, I, I think growing up in the Northeast is a different Asian American experience. At oh, least yeah. I had experience. I grew up on the West Coast mm-hmm. and in, in a town like New Haven, right? And, and obviously for folks who don't know, that's where Yale is. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's got a different culture to it. Uh, fun fact, I was there yesterday. <laughs> um, I was only there literally for two hours. I didn't get to see much of the town. Everybody raves about the pizza, so I it's apparently a, have to go back. A big Italian culture in New Haven. There's a big fight between like New York and New Haven pizza. So I mean, um, yeah, I you know where I land well. on that one. <laughs> well, it's, it's so funny, you know, like you know, immigrant culture is so weird in that like there's just some things you can't really explain because you try to make yeah. it sense. I like because you know, I grew up in China. Like I I don't eat cheese. When I was a kid, there was no cheese around, right? Right. And um, when I got to the U.S., like. People are like, you have to eat cheese. You have to. I'm like, this is disgusting. And to this day, if I see a big block of cheese, I'm running the other way. Like, I just like I have like a visceral reaction to it. But because I grew up in New Haven, and you have to eat pizza, you can't not eat pizza if you grow up in New Haven. I am somebody who like hates cheese, but I love pizza. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's such a weird, like, it's like it's such an immigrant thing, right? Like you just that's how you have to like acclimate in this culture. <laughs> and, and the thing that you brought up actually, I think, is so poignant in full circle because now you're creating things that we see ourselves in. Right. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean is when we grew up with, you know, TGIF on Fridays, like those things, we compared our families against that. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, and maybe intentionally made us feel like our families were not American. Enough. Yes. Oh my God. And we would always be like, why is it my mom and dad like that? Why don't I have neighbors like that? Why don't I have friends who come over like that? And you feel shame um, about it, right? You feel correct. shame, yeah. And and you know, and, and even and even when we did see black families, they were very whitewashed, right? Like Family Matters, mm-hmm. um, you know, Fresh Prince. They weren't stories of the majority of black folks in this country right. and so even we even when we saw got to see in the rare cases diversity it was still made to fit this pristine or almost manufactured version of what an american family was supposed to be yeah and our entire at least our generation of asian immigrant kids because i came here when i was eight too so right around oh, wow. the time you did like it was like oh why is my family like why are we different yeah right yeah. and and why and it took a long time. And I think for me and you, like when you come at seven or eight, like you know your culture enough, right? Because that's the foundation. And so everything that happens to you is a comparison, right? Between the Korean, the Chinese side versus the American side. Yeah. And I don't think we knew and I don't think we understood what that was doing to our identity and the way that the, the foundation in which we would be able to see the world. Because 
we were just made to feel like we didn't belong, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. even just the audacity of like, of course I'm not on TV because I'm not a real American, right? Right, and and so the things that we now know as you know the perpetual foreigner syndrome mm-hmm. or being microaggressed, being asking where you're from, like we didn't even have the language to describe that because we didn't even know that it was happening. And, and media did that to us. And media continues to do that to us by and large because who controls the budgets that allow these things right. to happen, right? And so I mean, I'm really excited at least for the current and the future generation of storytellers like you. And, and through the podcast format and through other media where we don't have to get the yeses from them to create the things that we want to see in the mm-hmm. world. It's obviously a lot harder when you don't have that institutional support, but it is not as impossible. Because back then, you wanted somebody to see something, you had to go get permission and money. I mean, and, yeah. and we don't have that anymore. It's like the 90s were like, you know, I've always been fascinated by like Wang Wong, you know, Wang Wong, the director. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because I, I was just like, how did you get Joy Luck Club made in the like the nineteen early nineteen nineties, <laughs> right? Like it's right. just like I mean, the movie the movie still like sort of holds up. Like I I watched it like a couple weeks ago, and I was just like, this is insane. Or like um you know um Brittany Mock's uh, Maya Lin documentary in the early nineties, which won an Academy Award for doc feature, mm. right? And you watch these, and you're just like, the world that you were trying to make these things is literally impossible. I mean, it feels right. impossible now, and it was a lot. Yeah. It's a lot easier than, than in the early '90s or like the '80s, and I, I yeah. think like that's something that people don't really like. I mean, there, there, more, there are definitely more and more opportunities, and it's still frustrating. But like how how far we've gone in the last like twenty years is sort of insane in of it in of itself. Um, yeah. I. Um, What's it called? I, you know, I, I, I think about a lot of the, the movies that I resonated the most when I was a kid, and this isn't surprising at all because you know, I grew up in a Chinese immigrant family, not an Asian American family. It's like, you know, uh, I loved Ang Lee's uh, The Wedding Banquet, or um, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Rush Hour, right? Because Rush Hour wasn't <laughs> it was it was about like black culture and like how black culture fit in white culture in general, right? Like with Chris Tucker being in it. Um, but it really was about like this, like, like this Chinese cop who came to the U S right. And like, I understood his culture. I understood what he was saying. And then I understood what Chris Tucker was saying. I was like, this is the first time I've ever felt represented in yeah. anything. Cause I was like, yeah, how does that fit? Right. Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this goes back I, to the point yeah. where like, I mean, movies really define my life in, in so many ways. It's so funny. You, you, you say that because, you know, that was celebrated, um, in my opinion, a, a little bit uh, wrongly because mm-hmm. Jackie Chan isn't an Asian American. And, you know, obviously there's yeah. a lot of I mean, it has repercussions to this day. Right? Now. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, a lot of accent based stuff yeah. and a lot of, you know, stereotype jokes. But like you said, because I think Asian Americans, especially like I grew up in L.A. and in, in New York City, like there was a lot of cultural stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because our culture, at least the uh, Asian American teenage culture of the 90s and 2000s, was heavily impacted by black culture and hip hop culture. And sure. so, you know, it, it felt very comfortable. Yeah. And again, I don't think we had the words or the knowledge, the awareness to describe it, but it was sort of where we went because maybe we didn't see ourselves fitting in in mainstream America culture so much. or whatever TV told us to think of that. Yeah. And so I think it's so, so fascinating. I When you started working on the Obama campaign and, you know, you, you talked about this multicultural America that... Uh, he made us feel welcome. And I, I agree with you. But oftentimes, and especially now, um, we, uh, Asian Americans, aren't always so welcome or even intentionally included of in diversity conversations when it comes to talking about race broadly. Yeah. It's it's largely a, you know, not largely, but in many cases, unfortunately, uh, a black and white issue in America to many people. Sure. And, you know, we're, again, marginalized even within that conversation. And and I know because I have had other friends who worked in the campaign and administration, and notably we had uh, Cal Penn here on the show a few episodes ago talking about his experiences. Mm. What, what was your take and, and sort of how you felt at, specifically as Asian American trying to create the visual impact of how the campaign would be seen by outsiders? Um, mm-hmm. And again, this was 10 plus years ago. Yeah. The culture was yeah. different. Yeah. Um, and so... The point, me asking this question isn't to like say if it was bad, it was bad, but 
how much we've come in the last 15 years to to make us a priority and not even a priority, but just uh, having a seat at the table when it comes to talking about broad topics mm-hmm. like diversity and multi-ethnic communities. How, how was that for you? And, and did that change through your time in the White House? So I didn't work in a White House. I was always a, I was always a campaign kid. You know, I'm not, ah, a, I'm not okay. a policy kid. I, you know, there's a great political saying by Mario Cuomo says, uh, we campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. And I was oh. always a poetry person. If, if this, that's not surprising, right? I make movies now. Yeah. Um, so I refuse to like step foot into policy <laughs> world. Um, I never had like a .gov address, if that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> but so I, I can't really speak to a lot of the things that I know mm. from people who have had .gov addresses that I hear, right? Because on the campaign, you just sort of accept that Asian Americans are not going to be prioritized. And like, that's, I mean, I don't think that's true anymore, but at the time when I was getting into politics, that's the norm. It's the norm. And and I, I think I was okay with that. I knew a handful of people who were Asian American who worked in electoral politics at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's funny, the first Asian American I ever met in politics, I was still in college. He worked for John Kerry at the time. He saw me in this like, rural main town during a fundraiser i looked so lost and he was like hey kid come here here's my business card you know keep in touch <laughs> his name is roger lau he ended up running elizabeth warren's campaign in 2020 right oh. who i still talk to to this day but like you know the power of something like that but like you know there's like a handful of rogers that are around um but uh like you just you just you accept it it's not a it's not something that you push um because you 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 know, like, I think a lot of Asian Americans, too, like, when you're in majority white spaces, like, you, you're trying to, like, even if you don't know it, like, you're trying not to, like, rock the boat. You know, right. even if it's, like, a white liberal space, you're, you're trying not to, you're trying not to rock the boat. You're trying to keep the, the train moving. And um, I think especially when you're very young, um, and I, I do think that, like, these days, respectability is not really a... a, a it's still around, but it's not like it, it's sort of contentious now. Whereas like mm-hmm. in the late 2000s, like it's very much a respectability thing. I, I never I also like didn't want to get boxed in because I was like, I want to, you know, be able to tell stories to, for for everybody, especially from a political angle. Like I, I want to learn. Right. And like that, that was very much my mindset when I when I got into it. So I, I don't think from a from a campaign side, you know, it it is as impactful um, or frustrating as it is from a governing side. Um, I mean, even to this day, I, I sort of feel like when, when we look at the people who are audacious enough to put their names on ballots will look like this, right? Yeah. Um, people like Michelle Wu, who was the mayor of mm-hmm. Boston, um, like people, people like that are like still like just like a handful. They're a handful. I, I want to get to a point. Mm-hmm. And, and this is like my dream. So like I moved on from corporate life to start an Asian American storytelling and media company, mm-hmm. which I understand that it's not common. It's actually pretty damn rare. Yeah. And like, I don't want it to be a big deal. Yeah. Like I, I dream of a day when my kids make fun of me for doing this right in that way that kids make fun of their parents. Like what was such a big deal, dad? Like we see us everywhere, right? Like, why did you have to like, you know, why was it such a big deal that like you got an invite to the White House? Like, isn't that just something that Asians do every day? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so like we want to like and even in your situation of like telling the Jeremy story, like we want so many Asian Americans to look like us, to exist in sports leagues, to exist in politics, yeah. to exist in corporate America so that we don't have to make a stupid documentary every time somebody does it. Right. Yeah. Like, but it's important that we do. But the, but the only way for us to get to that point of almost mundane existence is for us to celebrate everybody that's doing it now so that we can inspire the next generation to do it because even to this day when we feel and you and i are so freaking privileged we live in media we have friends who are cool we have friends who are connected and we live in the community so many young people still don't believe And because they're not watching the right things or being exposed to the right stories, that they still have a visibility problem that they don't see what they can't see. And and, and that's where I think some of the work that you've done is so, so, so fascinating. Um, you know, many people in the community, myself included, I was introduced to your work through 38 at the Garden. Mm-hmm. 
and then come to find out, holy crap, you've been at this for a long time and you've actually been creating things that we've seen and have been impacted by. Tell us about some of the things. And, you know, this is the uh, the part of the show where we brag about Frank. <laughs> you, you, you've done some yeah. amazing work with household names like Move On, Planned Parenthood, uh, Senator Warren. Um, yeah. You have, you know, uh, obviously the, the late uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right, right. Uh, you're very impactful in sharing her story. Um, you know, I, I, I so it's a sort of the life of po- in politics. And I was very much behind the scenes, which is why like, I didn't put my myself out there like that, you know, and I, I was always like a political marketing kid. You know, I loved, I loved it. And it was like all fit into that belonging, you know, multicultural America inclusion angle that, that I joined like the real world to be a part of. Right. And uh, I, I will say, I, I obviously I love Obama, but like I was so young, it wasn't that formative in like the way I actually began to like be a part of politics. That was very much the Warren campaign um, in 2012. That was like my first real big campaign. And what I did um, in politics was I would create the brand. I would you know mm-hmm. design the logo, the website. I would make videos, especially like digital videos that were designed to travel on social media. Um, I would create the look of the campaign and, you know, so much of it was influenced by my work, like on the Obama campaign, what I saw on the Obama campaign. Right. Um, and when like, I just, I got, I got really good and I got, I was really into making things go viral. Like that, that's sort of the best way to put it. And, and I, uh, I think my, my, my favorite, my favorite stuff from that era, this is all like, you know, early 2010s. Um, me and my friends worked on uh, this little digital campaign that ended up being called Notorious RVG, right? That everybody knew and people were obsessed about for years. Um, it got to the point now where we're just like, wait, why is this still going on? This is crazy, right? Like it was like <laughs> seven years going, but it was like a great reflection of like, I was learning to tell stories that weren't about myself, you know, but that fit into like this picture of like multicultural America of this like identity, respecting everybody's identity, America, inclusion. Like that's all of this work. That, that's what they all did. I'll put it this way. It ended for me in 2014, in early 2015. And what I mean by that is I was sort of done being very comfortable behind the scenes because part of like the idea mm-hmm. of being behind the scenes is like, I think I was putting on airs about I'm accepted now. You know what? Does that make sense? Like Obama yeah. won. Here I am working in politics. Here I am with all these clients that everyone knows. Here my working campaign on stuff that people know, but you don't have to know who I am. But like it was like this: if you were behind the scenes in politics, like you were part of like the American mosaic. I just felt like, oh well, I'm accepted. You know, like I'm 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 just I don't need to fight for a place here anymore. And I, I, look, I think it was a lie. I, I was, I was in my late twenties. I think I was lying to myself. Right. Mm. And the end of 2014 going into 2015, I think just really ripped the, 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 the mask off for me. And I mm. think that millions of people felt that way. Right. Um, I, I always put like, I'll put it this way. Like to me, my Obama experience is like a clean, neat 10 years because I saw him speak in August 2004, and I consider that era ending the moment I saw the word Ferguson trend on Twitter, which was August 2014. Mm. It's a clean decade of like, actually, this America is not nearly as ready to one except me, or is not even ready, period, because there's so many other people who we really don't like, who don't want to accept this multicultural America that nice. exists at all, right? So like, it's just it was this it was this crazy like recognition that like we're not ready and I, I still have to fight for my place in this and we all have to fight for our place in it, which is why we're doing the work that we do now, right? And from there, I sort of just took the the skill set that I developed in politics and I just applied it to my work. I think one of the things that I did that I'm really proud of during that stretch was I, I made a video for the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center called Letters from mm-hmm. Camp. And this was right when like Islamophobia was really picking up um, in the mid 2010s. 
and it was uh, I had these old letters written by young Japanese American incarcerees in World War II. They were written to a, a, a librarian in California named Clara Breen. So she collected all these letters. She gave them to the Japanese American National Museum. And I took some of those letters that I was like most impacted by. And we made a video where we had sort of like young Muslim kids read these letters and they're standing next to a survivor of a, of a Japanese American incarceration camp. And it is, I mean, still this day, like one of things that I'm like most proud of that, that I did. Um, and, you know, like, look, obviously like 30 at the garden is not nearly as like hard hitting <laughs> as that, right. It, it, that as a birth of like sort of the rude awakening that, that, that project is very much birth of like the rude awakening mm -hmm. that I was going through. Um, but I, it was like one of the first things I actually put my name on, right. It says created yeah. by Frank Chi at the end of the video. And I was like, wow, like here I am putting myself out there in a way that I just didn't feel like I needed to because I felt like I was accepted and like, right. you know, putting my name on things, doing projects where I was like, I'm doing it. You should know that I'm doing it was a, re was a visceral reaction to sure. feeling like that kind of multicultural America wasn't, wasn't actually real. Um, and it's been a journey. It's a burn, been a journey since I, I, I would say this, like I, during the later years, I worked for a lot for activist organizations. And it was still very much about identity, but it wasn't, I didn't work for any Asian American groups because again, like where are those groups in the larger ecosystem of things? People weren't making those, those arguments. And um, every single Asian American project, like whether it's letters from camp or uh, I, ma I made this um, piece of art with my friend, Eric Euler called American Gothic X, which is Yuri Kochiyama standing next to Malcolm X in front of the building, which they became friends. And it's called like mm. in that American Gothic kind of way. And that, that piece is like still one of the most like, impactful pieces because it, one is cross-racial solidarity, but two, like it just, it became a t-shirt. It gets shared every May 19th on their joint birthday. Like it was like a pro, like all of these are the lessons that I learned how to go viral, how to like speak to people in, in politics. Like they're all manifesting themselves now. Um, and like 30 at the garden very much is like the ultimate culmination of those experiences, um, which, you know, we should, we should talk more. We should talk about that now. No, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, how did it happen? Was it your idea? Did somebody come to you with it? Mm. Uh, we, I, I think we all wanted something like yeah. this because we remember it vividly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I am so happy and so glad that you did it. Uh, our friend Dave Lewis heavily mm -hmm. involved. There's so many other friends, Lisa and you know Hasid. They're they're yeah. all like everyone's in it. <laughs> it it's, it's a community project, it really. It at is. the end of the day. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, where did the spark come from? Sure. And who's, who told, who called who and said, we got to do this? So, you know, 30 at the Garden is the birth of me having to explain how I felt about Linsanity. Because usually I think if I'm talking to Asian people about Linsanity, I don't have to explain anything. You know what I mean? You just, you just <laughs> understand. And I just never really we did. get it. Yeah, I just right. never did. I never explained it. But um, this is like 2020 and I'm having a conversation with one of the producers, Trayvon Free. Trayvon's, you know, Oscar award winning director and producer Trayvon Free. And Trayvon, we were we talking about, obviously we were talking about Obama, right? Because we're talking about what is an impossible moment, right? A moment when someone comes out of nowhere and mm -hmm. shatters what society's expectations and quote unquote limits are of them and the community they come from. And they do it on the world stage, right? Mm -hmm. That's an impossible moment to me. And we were talking about it in the context of Obama winning because that is the biggest impossible moment any of us have lived through. And, and, you know, he was like, yo, what other, what other moments feel like that? And I was like, well, I'm Asian. So <laughs> there's only <laughs> one answer and it's insanity. <laughs> and I told him about my night and you got to think about it this way, right? Like to me, two most magical nights of my life, the night Obama was elected president and the night Jeremy dropped 38 at the garden. That's why the movie is called 38 at the garden, right? It's wow. the, from the, me explaining that. And mm -hmm. That night to me is like the most memorable of all of the Linsanity games because I was I was living in D.C. at the time and I was really pissed at myself that I missed that Wizards game, the one that he dunked on John Wall. I was just really mm -hmm. pissed. And I was like, I am not missing another game, especially if it's Kobe and the Lakers. I'm not missing this game. 
So I take the train up from DC to New York. And you know, like the Penn Station, you like literally yeah. take the escalator up and you're at Madison Square Garden. So I'm like, right. I remember I'm like darting. Okay, I get off the train. I just run up the escalator because I'm like, I need to get in this game, right? And I'm trying to like find tickets and like the scalpers outside were literally trying to charge me $700. I, I don't wow. have $700. Like I was just, I, I could not pull that <laughs> off. Um, so I'm like really bummed. And, you know, Koreatown is like right next door. Right? Koreatown is like, you yeah. know, like a block away. Street, yeah. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go to like one of the karaoke bars or something. I'll just like watch it there. And I really think about it much, but I was like, at least I'm close to the garden, right? And like, none of us, I'll be honest with you, like in the back of my head, I was like, you know, Jeremy's not, this is the Lakers, man. Like, this is where maybe, yeah. maybe where it ends. Like, maybe, maybe I don't have to pay $700 for this. So I could just watch it at a bar and like, not be mad if he doesn't have a good game or something. You know, I'm like trying to console myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I plop myself down at one of the bars and I swear to God, man, I don't. I tell Jeremy this. I'm like, I wish I was in the garden to watch you play. But looking back on it, I don't think I would have traded the experience I had for anything else. Because you're surrounded by people who look like you, who are about the same age, maybe a little older. And look, we all know the game. He played out of his mind for two hours. So you had two hours of people losing it. Like people are running around. They're screaming. They're crying to their beer. You know? And like. Look, I'm doing all those things too, but I'm also an observer, so I'm watching all of this. I'm like, yeah. what's going on, right? Like, and it's New York. It's, what is New York? So it's the Knicks, right? So you, and like, you got the hometown, you yeah, got the Asian. It's down the exactly. street. It's- <laughs> but like, <sighs> I, but like, I, my first reaction was like, this is a reaction to, to to stereotypes. This is like the wall of stereotypes that every Asian person feels like they have surrounding them. And there's this kid that comes out of nowhere and just cathartically just shatters it for us. Yeah. Just even for a fleeting moment, even though we know we have to go back to our lives, like, like it just felt like a cathartic reaction to that. Yeah. And then there was a part of me that was like, is this like your parents making you play violin and piano and not letting you play basketball <laughs> so you never got to fulfill your dreams? Because it definitely was that for me too, yeah. right? So it's both of those emotions which is why the first part of the movie talks about both, right? Like it's both right. of these emotions going on at the same time, the racing through my head. And I'll never forget this, like towards the end of the game, when it was obvious the Knicks were going to win, there was this guy, he's like weeping into his beer. He's like three, four people down from me at the bar. And he just, he just slams the table with both his fists and he just runs out the door. And like probably in like a normal situation, the bartender would be like, get him back here. He has to pay for his tab. Right. Bartender didn't even say not anything. that night. No, not that night. Right, like I've never experienced that before. Have you? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, so like I'm explaining this night to Trayvon, and Trayvon's just like, "How is that not a movie? Like, how have you not made wow. that movie? Like, Linsanity from the Asian fans' perspective, how have you not made that movie? That's insane." Because I, he, he was like, "I never, I remember Linsanity, but I don't have experience yeah. like that." Trayvon is black, right? So he was like, "Everybody remembers Linsanity, but like from the POV of that, like what?" Um, and you know, like the first part of the movie is called doubt. The first thing I did when he said that to me was yeah. doubt. I'll be honest with you. Cause of course. I was like, yeah. that was eight years ago. Like nobody cares what Asian people think in this country. We're invisible. Like, I, I don't know, man. And like credit to Trevor. He, he didn't really push me. He was just like, well, I'm just saying it's a great story, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, I knew it was a great story. Um, but I also, one, I just assumed that people don't care anymore. Right, like Linsanity was so big when it was happening, but this is 2020, and like I thought about it for a couple of weeks, right? And it's like the minute the minute I told that story, because I hadn't, first of all, I hadn't retold that story in years. So like, why wasn't that in the movie, Frank? Well, you know, initially we were, because I didn't want to put myself in the movie. Like, Je- yeah, but come Jenny, on, Jenny, That's Jenny, a qu- but Jenny sort of lived the owns the same. You could tell that that scene happened in thousands of establishments around the country. Because Jenny, but it's unique because it's you, and it's literally down the street. Yeah, and I know. If you if if you grew up in New York, or like for many of us, yeah. like have have spent you know way too many uh, long nights and mornings <laughs> on Thirty Second Street, <laughs> that that's a core memory. And, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe in a in, in an extended in a director's longer cut? than yeah, thirty eight exactly, minute exactly. video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's sort of taboo <laughs> for the director to put themselves in the movie unless it's the, it's like this the way you do it, right? Um, yeah. So 
I thought about it for a couple of weeks and I was like, look, this is 2020. This is like when anti-Asian violence was already starting to pick yeah. up. And I, I was like, look, if, if Jeremy is down and we, we know, we didn't know Jeremy at all. It was like, if Jeremy is down, like, <laughs> and we, we tell this about story from the community perspective and we make it about yeah. why it's important now. Cause I was already getting the stories. Yeah. I, I was already getting stories from my friends who were sending their kids to school being like, this is on a level of bullying, harassment that I have never seen. Like, this is what that was like. What I was like intaking. I don't have any kids, but like, I'm hearing all of this, right? And like, I'm like, this is insane. Because look, you grew up with those stereotypes. I grew up with those stereotypes, but they were not weaponized, right? They were sort of fun and making fun of you and whatever. But like, somebody would say Bruce Lee to you or whatever. But like, no, like, like they were not weaponized on this level where people yeah. are just picking on you. That's why all those scenes are in the movie, you know? Like, and. Yeah. And I, so I, I thought about it from that perspective. I was like, man, like if Jeremy's, I have no idea. We, we don't know him, right? We've no, we don't know. Um, but like, if he's down, hell yeah, let's make this movie. This is the, this, this yeah. is the message we have to send because Linsanity to me was all about, always about stereotypes. Linsanity existed because of stereotypes because people underestimated him his whole life. That's what Linsanity yeah. is, is just not noticing that this person is around, even though he deserves to be around. And then watching him take it over, right? Like, right. so I, I, I go back to Trayvon like a couple weeks later. I'm like, yo, I made a deck, <laughs> right? I was like, I made a deck, <laughs> right? We're going to call it 38 at the garden. And um, within like, you know, 30 minutes, we had our other producer, Samir Hernandez, on the phone. If you don't know Samir, Samir's oh. like, Samir knows like every athlete in America. He used to work for Jordan Brand. Like, like he knows every athlete in America. And within like one degree of separation, we were on the phone with Jeremy. And you know, when we when we first started having this conversation with Jeremy, you know, look, he's such a humble guy, man. Like, yeah, he the way he explained it to me was like, one, during that whole stretch, I'm literally just trying to survive. I'm not thinking about mm. societal impact. Like, I'm just I'm just trying to make sure I don't get cut from the team. Okay, I'm sleeping on my brother's couch, right? Like, like I get that. Right. But I think once somebody becomes a symbol of your struggles, you forget that they don't, they may not think about it that way. Right. It's really yeah. hard to be a symbol when you're a human being, but we make symbols sure. out of people because we need them. Right. And I feel yeah. like a lot of Asian Americans just turned Jeremy into a symbol and just assumed that he understood everything we were going through. And I think that's a folly. I mean, I, I think that's just not, you should, it is. you can't assume that of people. Right. And then the second part he said to me that was really fascinating. He was just like, Later in my career, when I was, you know, he had a nine-year career in the NBA, and he was like, I'm trying not to be defined by Lynn Sanity. I'm trying to, you know, like, yeah. play. I, I want that to be one chapter of my story in the NBA. And, like, I don't want that to be, I don't want that to be, like, the only thing that people remember me for. And I'm fighting for yeah. that every day. So, like, he, he, he'll say this, right? He said this in the interview. He's like, he ran away from Lynn Sanity a lot um, yeah. during that stretch of his career. Um, so, well, well, yeah. So it's fascinating because – in, in in a in a parallel, uh, President Obama had the same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He just wanted to be the go best goddamn president ever and, and serve his country. Yeah. But then he became the black president. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and and the burden, both the burden and the gift of that, when you're going through it, is really I'd yeah, imagine I one of the difficult yeah. things. Right. Like, yeah. I just want to play ball. Right. Right. But the the reality is, is insanity. If if a regular if a non Asian American person if a white or a black dude in the NBA did that, it's not the same no, story. No, no, well, because it's just a guy who had a fluke, right? But like it's 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 two it's two groups of folks who like are normally accepted in the way we correct, have correct because they're there they're America. present exactly correct. Exactly. So, and so if if somebody has a breakout game, they're like, oh, remember that? You know, right. somebody had had a had a, had a flashbang of, of a week. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. we're still talking about this because this will be forever remembered in at least Asian American pop culture, right. hopefully global pop culture, as the moment no, that he, really he, made us feel seen. He's top three, if not top one, ever for me, just in terms of that feeling. And but because it's us, yeah, right? exactly, and, exactly. And, so like, well, so look, I'll just I'll round out the story this way. Like, I'm like, oh, so but, I mean, from an Obama perspective, I, I kept on like because of the world I come from and the, the yeah. perspective, the impossible moment perspective. I'm describing it. I keep on like 
talking about Obama, he was like, yo, you got to stop comparing me to Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that was, a, so like, look, I mean, we, 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 obviously this is Jeremy's story and like, he has to be comfortable sharing it whatever way yeah. he's comfortable, but we gave him the angle. We gave him the, like, we, we don't, we uh, don't want to retell this story. Um, you know, like just from a basketball perspective, we want to tell the story from a community perspective. It's got to be, you know, we want somebody at the end of the movie. If you, if you feel different in America in general, but especially if you're Asian American, by the end of the movie, you're not thinking about Jeremy or basketball. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your own life, right? So, like when we when that was our north star, like when we figured that out, like that's when everybody it got locked in. That was like July of 2021, and from there we had a conversation with Dave Liu, who you know just. I didn't have to explain anything to Dave, right? Like, I mean, like, this is not a, and Dave, like, just opened up his network to us. And that's how we mm. got the initial round of funding was just, literally, it's like Dave and his friends. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, everybody felt the same way, right? It was, we were all sort of going off the same memory we had of Linsanity, how it made us feel. And, yeah. um, you know, like, I always, I tell folks this way, like, it's October 4th. Our first shoot was October 26th of 2021, right? That's how fast we moved on this process because once we once we got everybody locked in, like we all knew this story, like it just it was bursting, it was bursting to come out. Um, so that's that's how we got here. As we start to wrap, Frank, I mean that that's the thing. Um, you walk into it thinking it's a basketball flick, and as as a, as a basketball fan myself, mm-hmm. you know, in in sort of our uh, generational demographic, we're very excited. Like, oh shit, it's a Jeremy Doc, <laughs> right? Because we relive all of it, right? And the feelings of excitement, but also just this trepidation of like, oh shit, I hope he doesn't F it yeah, up, right? Like, because yeah. it's going to set us back so much, right? <laughs> and, and even though, but it's so silly, right? He's on the highest thing, but if he doesn't play better than the last best game and ever, it's this impossible bar. Yeah. But you walk away thinking about, your kids. I thought about my kids the entire time. I, I thought about my parents and I thought about shit, like nothing's changed yeah. or things haven't gotten better. Yeah. And you, you showed some clips of children in the video. You also shared a story on stage on, on Thursday yeah. about uh, a young person right. uh, who came to a screening in New York city. Um, Sometimes we do things and we don't know who's going to get impacted by it, especially when we're creating something for the public. Knowing what you know now, having the conversations that you've had, what is your hope for this movie in making our community feel a certain way or stop feeling a certain way? Um, I, I want people to remember that anything is possible. And I think that's a really hard thing. One, it's just not really in vogue to say that these days, right? I think uh, we trade on other emotions in the way we have conversations mm-hmm. in our media ecosystem, whether it's anger or, you know, m- mostly it's anger these days, right? And I, I just want people to remember what it felt like when it happened because it literally made me feel like I could do anything. And that sounds ridiculous, but like, it's true. It's what I felt when Obama won. It, it's, it was fleeting. Let's keep it real, right? Um, but it's a reminder of how, how far you should shoot. Shoot your shot, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't even think, I thought about the insanity over 10 years. I, like, what, the way Hassan describes the wave off in Toronto, I never even thought Oof. about it that way. It took me Oof. out. It took me out, right? And like, it just, it encapsulates everything for me. It's like, when you're Asian American in this country, you're expected to be a supporting player. You're not the protagonist, no. right? Supporting, supporting actor at best. And the wave off, the way Hassan describes it is, is like, no, I'm taking the shot. It's, you know, like, and, and like, I don't think people have really understood, like, like Asian Americans are just expected to, to play that role. And once yeah. you don't, it shatters people's like stereotypes of you on a massive level. And in a way that sometimes only, only something like sports can do, right? Sure. Like it is, it's, 
in front of billions on the world stage. And, I, you know, like I, I screened this for one of my best friends who just became a dad. And he, I mean, he was in tears at the end. He was just like, that's the first piece of Asian American content I've, I've intaken since becoming a father. And he was like, everything about the way I look at it has changed. You know, because like you don't, you want to send your kid to school, not telling them not to make a sound because they're going to call you Kung Flu or China virus, yeah. but they can do anything they want. And that's what yeah. happens. I mean, 10 years is a long time. A lot of those kids were 10 years old, eight years, they weren't around. They weren't alive. Yeah. Even if you're 15, you probably don't remember it. And I, it's, to me, I, I didn't think that was my original audience, but like looking back on it now, like I'll be real with you, there's so many F-bombs in the movie. I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is for kids, but like it's really for kids. And it, I just, I hope that's what people take out of the movie. Anything is possible. You want to drop 30 in the garden? You can do it. Anyway. I wonder if there's a bunch of uh, Asian boys named Jeremy who were born like that, <laughs> that year. Uh, it might be a fun like demographic study to do later. I know, right? Um, in, in the spirit of, of keeping uh, authentic to the movie, I am so fucking excited <laughs> uh, for everybody else to see this. Yeah. And if you're if you're listening to this, you're probably Asian American, but please share it out on social, especially into your professional networks that probably look a lot different than your primary social networks, because we need everybody to see this. Yeah. Right. And, and I think oftentimes we, we get very um, tunnel vision within our own Asian American community to say we need to hear our stories. No, 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 no. That's true. Of course it is. But we need other people to see our stories. We actually need non-Asian kids to see Jeremy yeah. to normalize yeah. that so that the next time something happens, it's not a big deal. Now, right now, we can in our fingers count how many Asians are in every league. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be able to finitely count every Asian in the <laughs> yeah. league. I, I want there to be many Jeremy's, but I want him to be celebrated as a person that made gave us permission to succeed. Because the most important part that you and if you're listening to this before you watch the movie and you're not understanding all the references, go watch it and then listen to it again. Mm-hmm. I promise you'll make more sense. The wave off. I am convinced that even if he missed the shot, it still would have had similar cultural impact in him having the audacity to even take the shot. Yeah. Of course, him taking the shot, having an opposing home arena go nuts for you. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot of... Asian folks in Toronto, we get that. He had home home field advantage, home court advantage. But it was leading up to that moment of those 20 seconds. And in all of our minds, it's like, oh, no, 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 shit. He's doing it. He's not. And and then for that, and then, you know, there's this, again, Hassan does it much better. But there's this moment where you're like, oh, my God, he's actually going to take the shot. Mm -hmm. And then it's simultaneously, God, I hope he doesn't miss. (laughs) Please don't miss. Please don't miss. But then in hindsight, after watching the movie, it's like, it didn't, it didn't matter, matter if he, he made missed. it or not. It didn't matter if he missed it. It's the so. fact that he took the chance in his own hands and said, screw you, this is my game, and I'm going to put it into my hands. I'm not passing it off to another it's guy. It's so funny. As a filmmaker, right? I would have been like, you know what? I would have been glad if you missed it because it would have been deeper. <laughs> right? Deeper story. Exactly. exactly right? He took the shot. It doesn't matter the outcome. It's the story yeah. of how I got there. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for this, Frank. I, I am so excited. Um, I, I had the privilege of spending more time with you after the event. We went to dinner. I had a great time. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I know you've done great work and I don't want to minimize that, but I, I, I think you will become an important pop culture icon in your, oh, in I yourself, in our community, because it takes us who have the privilege and friends like Trayvon yeah. and friends like Dave yeah. to actually want to use our privilege to do something good for us because we, and we'll, we'll loop it back. The, the TV shows that you and I grew up with in the nineties. Mm-mm. Yeah, they're not going to tell our story in the way that we can. Right. And so now that we're all grown up, we have access to people, opportunities, resources. We, we got to do it. Yeah. And it, we have to just like Jeremy, th- there is a balance between being the greatest at what you can do on the global objective stage, mm-hmm. but have it and understand that it means something different and more for us and our kids. Yeah, because it's us. Yeah, and because it, you could have made this about and any it, athlete, exactly, and it would have been true, right? And like you know, I was supposed to put it this way. Like one, I'm thankful to Jeremy for letting us tell his story this way. Um, and I, I think that that is I me. Mean, <laughs> also, I'll put it this way: like when, when we finally met, I was just like, "You're 
like so Trayvon and Samira are my producers. They're both six seven. They played uh college ball <laughs> and like and they were friends with Tyson Chandler. Like they all went to the same high school, right? So like they're both six seven. I'm six feet tall. And Jeremy's like six three. So like in the photos, he looks more like my height than he does their height, which is like, <laughs> like that just blew my mind even more. Because when I finally got to meet him, I'm like, dude, like you're like my size, man. You're not Yao Ming. You're not seven six. Like, like you're just going hard in the paint, and you're like not that it, it much bigger you... than me. This is insane. It just, it just, it won. It's us. Yeah, yeah. It just that's exactly what I mean. Like literally, it's us. literally us. And like that, like that really blew my mind. And just. The fact that like everybody involved, Patricia, who's who's Jeremy's um, mm. manager and sister-in-law, Patricia has been instrumental in 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 this project. But the fact that we came together and like just all went towards this north star of making this about the community, it just means it means the world to me. Like I'll be honest with you, it, I sometimes it just doesn't feel real. I'm like, what did we make this movie? We make it at the speed that we made it at. Like, is it in front of people? It's going to be on HBO on October 11th. Like, what? Right? Like, it's it's still not registering to me. But I I, I hope mm-hmm. people get a sense of that magic too when they watch it because that it's truly been a magical experience to make this thing. Well, it's about to get real in a week. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, it's real now. <laughs> uh, go to HBO Max, download it, um, or you can just tune into H. If you don't have HBO Max, tune into HBO. It airs at nine o'clock on October 11th and it streams Excellent. on HBO Max as well. Okay. Um, but there is an air uh, date. Don't borrow your friend's password. Yeah. Uh, sign up because uh, they, they, you know, we need to help the people who support our stories. And so thank you so much for making this. And I, I am so excited. Um, we're working on some fun stuff behind the scenes to get more people to see this. And I, I really hope that this continues, not begins, but continues the conversations that we need to have in our community about what these moments mean for us, particularly when we're feeling, when we have felt so down and out mm-hmm. and um, so much negativity has been filled our lives. I hope that we can look back at moments like the garden and, and this film does really a great job memorializing it and keeping it uh, on top of our mind and, and getting back to that point where we're trending because we scored 38 at the garden. <laughs> and, and and I say we, because I felt like it was us yeah. too. Yeah. Um, sure. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Um, for 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 making time and saying yes to our interview, I, I can't wait. I will rewatch it on on ten eleven, and uh, when my kids are old enough, I hope we can watch it yes. together and then really have them understand why Dad is crying <laughs> and, and 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 why it's so important and uh, why Uncle Frank was, is Aww. such a cool dude for for, for making this. And so uh, to to everybody who made this interview possible, uh, thank you so much. Go watch Thirty Eight at the Garden, created directed by Frank Chi, and and telling a story of a. Uh, of just an Asian guy who played basketball and ended up changing the way that we see ourselves in our Asian American community. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate it. Incredible conversation with Frank. Thank you so much uh, to Frank, to Patricia, who is Jeremy's manager and sister-in-law, who made the film possible, to Dave Liu, my friend, uh, executive producer on the film, to everybody who at HBO Max made this movie possible or who bought the movie because they filmed it on their own. And then coordinated very quick turnaround and getting this episode out into the world. Big shout out to you, Patrick. Uh, I recorded this yesterday. We edited it overnight. And so we're able to get this out on 10-11. Please go see it. And I want you to share this, not just the movie, uh, but the episode with two groups of people that may not be top of mind. One are kids, Asian American kids who need to see Jeremy, who weren't alive for it. And it is still a moment that is not history to them. But we need young people to see this movie, to see themselves and see what impact Uh, this moment has on all of us. And two, share it with non-Asian American friends. A lot of people are going to go, you know, uh, hop onto HBO Max tonight and and watch this movie thinking it's about, it's another basketball documentary, right? Let's go see the highlights at the garden. And, you know, he he did the spin move and he made the shot in Toronto. Yeah, it's about that, but it's not. And I I hope that this movie really opens a dialogue with non-Asian Americans to understand a little bit of what we have gone through and continue to go through in this country under the context of a cultural moment that Every single dude in his 30s and 40s knows exactly what happened 10 years ago at the Garden and what that meant for us. And so learn more about the show at theasianamericans.com. You can email us uh, on the show here at jerry at justlikemedia.com or jerry at jerrywan.com. You can also learn more about the work that I do outside of the podcast at jerrywan.com or find both Patrick and me on a little place called LinkedIn. Where else can people find you, Pat? 
People can also find me at Patrick in the World on Instagram. And I also host another show called The John Chi Show, which you can also find at John Chi Show on all the social media platforms and also housed under the Just Like Media banner. And Patrick is going to Korea next week. And so he'll be out for a couple of weeks. First time going back as a uh, fully functioning adult ever <laughs> since, uh, you know, you, you were uh, brought here, part of the adoption process. And so have fun. Uh, learn a lot, eat a lot, drink a lot. And I know you're going to get emotional about it, but I, I am so happy for you and so happy for Emily that you guys get to experience this together. And uh, big shout out to our young uh, James on over at the Korean American Federation in LA who told us about the trip, uh, asked us to apply and just made it all happen. And so grateful to friends and community leaders who support us along the way. I am your host, Jerry Wan, along here with Patrick Armstrong, our producer. Go watch 38 at the Garden, a film by Frank Chi on HBO Max today, and we will see you next time.